You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. The Hunt for Red October, which came out in 1990 and was directed by John McTiernan. It stars Sean Connery, Alec Baldwin, Scott Glenn, James Earl Jones, Sam Neill, Joss Ackland, Richard Jordan, Peter Firth, Tim Curry, Courtney B. Vance, Stellan Skarsgård, Jeffrey Jones, Timothy Cartard, Larry Ferguson, Thomas Arana, and Fred Dalton Thompson. The genre would be Cold War Thriller. This thing could park a couple of hundred warheads off Washington or New York, and no one would know anything about it. Captain's name is Ramius. Trained most of their attack boat skippers. The Russians call him the Vilnius Schoolmaster. We will pass through through the American patrols, pass their their nets, and lay off their their largest city, and listen to them, them. rock and roll. 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 Ramey is trying to defect. Let's assume that you're right, and this Russian intends to defect. Five. I'm telling you, he wants to defect. Four. Three. Two. One. March. A great day, great comrades. Day, comrades. We, sail we sail into history. Most things in here don't react too well to bullets. Some things in here don't react well to bullets. Most things in here don't react too well to bullets. It says a lot about how great the cast is in this movie that we hear that same line from two different actors, and it's equally enjoyable each time. Of course, I'm referring to Sean Connery, R.I.P., at the peak of his wise gray years, and young alpha male Alec Baldwin when he was trying to be a leading man. Surrounded by a stacked group of veterans like Scott Glenn and James Earl Jones, and -and up-and-comers like Courtney B. Vance and Stellan Skarsgård, all just relishing the chance to shout out jargon like... Left full rudder, he's off in your bow point. Or... One ping only, please. Just a full-on sausage fest with no female characters pretty much after the opening credits. Adapted by the king of 80s dad novels, Tom Clancy, and directed by the king of dad movies at the time, director John McTiernan, in his follow-up to Predator and Die Hard. You could even say that this might be the ultimate dad movie. The good thing is that you don't have to be a dad to enjoy it. You see, my wife loves this movie, as do my daughters. And why? Because it's an exciting thriller that never insults your intelligence. It takes place during the Cold War, and yet there are no real conventional bad guys. Go to 105 on the reactor. Captain, what is it? Where are we going? We're going to kill a friend, Yevgeny. We're going to kill Ramius. Nope, Tupolev, Skarsgård, doesn't really count. And neither does, quote, the cook. Everyone is just doing their job, and the whole plot hinges on whether our two main protagonists are doing their jobs just a little better at the right time. Anatoly, you're afraid of our fleet. Hmm? You should be. Personally, I give us... One chance in three. Major props have to go to writers Larry Ferguson and Donald E. Stewart for adapting a dense novel with a labyrinthine plot 
and dozens of characters into a cohesive, elegantly structured 140-minute Hollywood blockbuster. Now, I had read the novel before seeing this, and yes, they do leave a good amount on the table, but every choice is sound, including giving Ryan the character a lot more to do. It is seriously one of the best adaptations of a mass market book that I have ever read. And of course, there is that cast. You don't play quiet, huh? Oh, this is nothing. You could have been with us five, six months ago. Boom! You talk about guilt. You ran into a hailstorm over the sea of Japan, right? Everybody's stretching their guts out. Literally every character is interesting from the helicopter pilot, played by one of my favorite stand-up comedians at the time, Rick Dukeman, comically talking about motion sickness to Jack, to the sly navigator on the Red October, who is so calm and confident that it's actually unnerving to those around him. Give me a stopwatch and a map, and I'll fly the Alps in a plane with no windows. Map is accurate enough. To Admiral Painter's second in command on the battleship, who quietly comes around to respect Ryan within just a couple of scenes. There is not a weak link in this chain, and it all adds up to one of the best thrillers of the 1990s. And it's not just for dads. So he gets this piece of Pavarotti. It was Paganini. What happened? It was Paganini. This is my story. You tell the right, cop. Pavarotti is a tenor. Paganini was a composer. Okay. So he's got this music, and he's got it out in the water, and he's, he's listening to it on his headsets, and he's just happy as a clam. And then all hell breaks loose. There's a whole slew of posts out of San Diego. Including one way out at Pearl. Including one way the hell out at Pearl. All of a sudden, they start hearing, Pavarotti, come out their asses. <laughs> and now the categories. First category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Kansas City's own, the late great Basil Polidorus, composed the score for this movie, and it's certainly one of the film's highlights. The score for this movie is a muscular mix of orchestral, choral, and electronic elements, which doesn't often sound like a conventional score, especially when the action goes underwater or just above water. In fact, it gets quite atmospheric, often relying on percussion slams and keyboard figures at key points, never more so than a particularly hair-raising set piece featuring our hero dangling from a helicopter trying to get aboard the USS Dallas, which comes to the surface to nab him, if not for some very strong crosswinds. This particular track is definitely one of the highlights and is fittingly called Chopper. Of course, whenever revisiting this movie, the most memorable piece of music is, of course, the Russian choral hymn, which both kicks off the movie and closes it out in dramatic fashion. We also hear portions of it throughout the movie as well. It's never better than during the opening credits, of course, when the camera first pulls away from Connery and Neil standing at the top hatch of the Red October, just as it is about to pull out into the ocean. You are 
This whole opening credit sequence is a McTiernan special in that he basically lays out loads of visual exposition setting up our main protagonist within just a few minutes of opening credits. Yes, he had also done the same thing with recent movies Predator and Die Hard. After leaving just that brief intro of Connery on the water, we then get to learn just about everything we need to know about Jack Ryan over just a few minutes of rousing chorus. He's an American who lives near London. He has a British wife and daughter who wants a bear. Well, actually, only the daughter is asking for the bear. He's an avid student of naval history. He works for the CIA, which is literally the last shot of the critics, and that he's also afraid of flying. Can I get you anything, sir? No, thank you very much. You know, if you did try and get some sleep, the flight would go a lot faster. I can never sleep on a plane. Turbulence. Pardon? Turbulence. Solar radiation heats the Earth's crust. Warm air rises, cool air descends. Turbulence. I, I don't like that. Well, try to get some sleep anyway. Yes, indeed, this remains an extremely catchy theme. And if you were always curious as to what those Russian lyrics translate to in English, there will also be a link to a YouTube video providing those very lyrics in the notes for this episode. This track is called Hymn to Red October. The next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Oh, right. Have I mentioned just how perfect Alec Baldwin is in this movie? He was very much an up-and-comer by the time casting was announced for CIA analyst Jack Ryan the year before in 1989. I don't remember thinking much of it except that he had already been popping up in various roles throughout the second half of the 1980s. She's having a baby, working girl, Beetlejuice, and previous episode Married to the Mob. And with the exception of Beetlejuice, he always seemed to be playing smarmy jerks. Baldwin was quite good at that as well. Do you think I'm going to be happy? I mean, honestly. You want to be a writer? You want to be a husband? Maybe it'll work out, who knows? <laughs> yeah, you'll be happy. <laughs> you just won't know it, that's all. Baldwin was always adept at convincing you that he was the smartest guy in the room. That raspy bass voice of his and those intense blue eyes, the glare of his could just sell you on just about anything. But for the character of Jack Ryan, he also added a couple of other notable dimensions, empathy, self-deprecation, and also sounding intelligent without sounding condescending. Baldwin is so good here that he even manages to hold his own in the charisma department with Sean Connery. No small feat, mind you. So why then is he listed in this category? Because disappointingly, this would be the only time that we would see him play this character. This movie was a smash success back in 1990, and Paramount was fast-tracking a sequel to come out just two years later, Patriot Games, one of several novels featuring this character. 
But alas, Baldwin was driving a hard bargain, apparently, not only asking for too much money, but wanting to delay production so that he could do a stage play. (sighs) And, well, the studio called his bluff, apparently having had Harrison Ford lined up for a project which had just fallen through, so they hired Harrison Ford to replace him. To me, it just remains one of the great what-ifs for modern movie franchises. Baldwin could have just owned this character for years to come. It would have been thrilling to watch this character evolve with the actor. Alas, Harrison Ford played Jack Ryan for two pretty solid sequels. In 2002, Ben Affleck would play him for one kind of ill-conceived entry. 11 years after that, Chris Pine was okay in a Jack Ryan prequel movie. And nowadays, of course, we have John Krasinski apparently doing a pretty solid job playing him for the Amazon Prime series of the same name, Jack Ryan. All good actors, who I like. But in retrospect, none of them brought the magic to this character that Baldwin did in this movie. You wish to add something to our discussion, Dr. Ryan? Well, sir, I was just thinking that perhaps there's another possibility we might consider. Ramius might be trying to defect. Do you mean to suggest that this man has Proceed, come... Mr. Ryan. Well, Ramius trained most of their officer corps, which would put him in a position to select men willing to help him. And he's not Russian. He's Lithuanian by birth, raised by his paternal grandfather, a fisherman. And he has no children, no ties to leave behind. And today is the first anniversary of his wife's death. Oh, come on. You're just an analyst. What can you possibly know what goes on in this mine? I know Ramius, General. This brings me to the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. We are talking about a modern genre classic, which is literally filled with such memorable moments. So I will just narrow it down to two, which actually occur pretty much five minutes apart from each other within the overall climax. The first trailer moment. Circling back to that most quotable line, Our two main protagonists, Ramius and Ryan, are now working together aboard the Red October. They are on the main bridge, and some mysterious figure just shot at them, sadly killing Sam Neill's Borden. As they're going to find out just who was shooting at them, shots ring out again, and this time hit Ramius. And now he's hurt, so he has to stay back. So it's Jack now on his own. Ramius, of course, gives him that rather redundant warning, and then the camera pulls to the right of Ryan, and we get one glorious shot pulling back to see just what Ramius was referring to. Hey, Ryan, be careful what you shoot at. Most things in here don't react too well to bullets. Right. As Jack turns a corner, no, I don't know if this was a matte painting or just a detailed model shot from a certain vantage point, but it is one hell of a shot. We see Jack just briefly look down a long, seemingly endless corridor of nuclear missiles on each side. It's the missile bay. Yeah, I think Ramius might have had a point. And the other trailer moment actually occurs just about five minutes earlier, as we witness something that is both funny and awe-inspiring. Tricky combination to pull off, to say the least. And this occurs during the final cat-and-mouse underwater battle between the Dallas, the Red October, and the Konevolov. Attempting to evade a torpedo that it drew away from the Red October, we see the USS Dallas just burst out of the water. Come on, Big D. (laughs) 
It feels like it's there to mostly set up the gag of the Russian seamen who are all being rescued, all cheering and shouting in Russian that their captain scared the Americans out of the water. It's quite funny. But what makes it work so well is that image of the sub lifting out of the water with the force of a humpback whale. Whether it was using models or trick photography, it is just an impressive sight to behold. And now the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. It's kind of crazy in retrospect just how wrong this movie could have gone. So many characters, shifting points of view, and relying very much on events occurring underwater, which could inherently present as dull or as just uncinematic in the wrong hands. Underwater action is not easy to pull off. But McTiernan, with the help of ace DP Jan DeBont, the future director of Speed no less, he really uses every tool in his arsenal to show action occurring in multiple locations, including three distinctly different submarines, which we can always tell apart from each other, keeping it not only cohesive and exciting, but even witty at times. I mean, one of the first things that anyone remembers after seeing this is the now famous zooming close-up of Officer Putin. No, not that Putin. His face, as he says, Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured forth his bowl into the air, and a voice cried out from heaven, saying, It is done. Shifting from Russian to English is just such an inventive technique for getting past language issues in a film like this. At his peak, there really was not anyone better at directing large-scale action than McTiernan. The release of this movie in 1990 capped off a trio of classics in just over three years, including previous episodes Predator and Die Hard. Seriously, I would put up that three-film run against any other genre director's run over a similar time frame. And yes, I'm including the likes of Spielberg, Carpenter, Cameron, definitely. For masterfully pulling off what I believe was his best film overall, John McTiernan is the MVP. And the sea will grant each man new hope. As sleep brings dreams. Christopher Columbus. Welcome to the new world, sir. My rating for The Hunt for Red October would be five stars out of five. This movie is just a treasure, which I can rewatch again and again. It remains one of my personal all-time favorites. It's definitely in my all-time top 20. And if you're looking to watch The Hunt for Red October, it is currently streaming on Max. And that ends another One Ping Only Pleash review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Cinema.